This episode of Monocycle is brought to you by Smilf, a new comedy series from Showtime. Smilf is about a 20-something single mom from South Boston navigating dating, sex, career, and motherhood. Check it out. It's based on a Sundance-winning short film, and every episode is directed by a woman. It's also loosely based on the life of the series creator, Frankie Shaw. Art imitates life once again. Smilf is now streaming on Showtime, but if you go to Showtime.com and enter the code MANREPELLER, you get two weeks free. That's free. F-R-E-E. The offer is available through December 1st. And now for Monocycle. Flying on Halloween feels like a real luxury, like missing Halloween. Yeah, it's also kind of spooky. I hope your plane is dressed up. I'm like, this is amazing. I have a fun Halloween fact that includes aviation. When I met AB, I was dressed as a slutty flight attendant. That's incredible. Where did you guys meet? At a, at, I don't know. Some I'm saying I don't know, but I do know very well. At a party like, in I know Chelsea that well. I was not supposed to be at. I was 17 years old. It's the first and last time I showed that much shoulder and that much leg in the same outfit. I'm so into this. It was really fun. Um, wait, now are you like done? Did you have to do? I keep feeling like fashion, whatever it is, is never ending. Did fashion month end? Yeah, it ended last month, but I was just in L.A. for a CFDA event. It really doesn't end. Like, if you search hard enough, you can find a fashion week every single week of the year. But can't you say the same thing about, like, an award season? I guess you could if you were, like, doing the full award circuit, like, in South Africa, in the Middle East, like, hit in Australia big time. Like, if you were just really going for it, 100%. But with the fashion thing, I just feel like everyone's like... Another Fashion Week Monday. And I'm like, I thought that this was going to stop and that I could return to feeling attractive. <laughs> well, it shouldn't make you feel unattractive, Lena Dunham. I mean, firstly, every outfit you put on, it doesn't make me feel unattractive. It makes me feel like I have something really beautiful to aspire to. That's how I feel about you and your That's blog really nice. and your outfits. That's... It doesn't, it just makes me feel like there's like a level of creativity to aspire to. I was just on um, Sophia Amoruso's podcast, Girl Boss, and she asked me how I got my sense of style, and I told her from low self-esteem, because I think that's, I had never said it before, but I think that's exactly true. It was totally my way of covering myself up, and I think that sounds a little like something I heard you say once about your tattoos. Um, yeah, I, and by the way, I'm still getting tattoos. Like, I've gotten tattoos I regret within the last year of being 31. What are the top two? You said multiple. What do I re- – what do I like – like this shouldn't be on my body. Um, I guess the real humdinger and like literally as I was doing it, Jenny, Connor, and my boyfriend and everyone who cares about me were like, is this really what you want? And girls had been done for like a week and I was like, yes, it's absolutely what I want. Like nobody stand in my way is that I have the neon sign from that restaurant, the Odeon, tattooed on my butt. Oh, that's a great tattoo. Why do you regret that? I guess it was interesting to see myself do something and regret it in real time. Like, usually you have, like, a good 10 to 15 years to be like, oh, that wasn't the best idea. But, like, 
Firstly, it's orange. And so, like, anything orange, unless you're super up close, looks like some, looks like it shouldn't be on your body. Like, it definitely has, like, a skin disease-y aspect. And I love... control, which is cool. Which is cool. And I love the Odeon passionately, but I was like, there's a lot of restaurants I love. Like, I, like, yes, I do have an emotional relationship to the Odeon, but, like... There was something a little bit like, I grew up in Tribeca and I'm going to tattoo the name of this restaurant on my butt. Like, there's about 80 angles of it I don't love. The guy who did it, my friend Robert, he's very talented. Like, he did as well with the assignment as a person could. But, yeah, I'm still getting, like, covered in weird weird things. I keep saying that it's over and it's never over. So how how did you decide the Odeon? The Odeon. The Rodeo. The Odeon. That's how I pronounce it because I like to really like give them a sense that I know what's what so that I can get my reservation. But um, and your soup, and I can get my delicious soup. It's funny because it's like not. I have this association with the Odeon is like it's impossible to get in and like it isn't like it's a crowded restaurant, but it's not like oh god, if we don't call three weeks ahead, we're never going to be able to go to the Odeon. It's like a family eatery. But because I lived in Tribeca and it was like in Soho in the 80s and it was the only restaurant like that existed, it was like you did have to wait in line. And so to me, like Odeon's a real feast or famine situation. Like so when I get in there, it's like I'm going to eat everything because I don't know when the next time is that I'm going to get into the Odeon. <laughs> And now it's on your ass. It's literally tattooed to your ass. So the next time you go there, you can be like, hold, hold please. I'm going to tell one thing, and this is not a complaint about the Odeon. I just, because I love them and I love their management. I love everybody who works there. But after I got the tattoo and I showed it on my Instagram, I got a message from someone who worked there who was like, oh, my God, we all love this so much. Like, next meals on us and so I brought my boyfriend in and I was like Jack and I and I was like it was like obviously like 6 p.m. because we barely leave the house and I was like and you were like I will have the the triage of oysters literally everything and I was like high rollers night baby it's all on me (laughs) I'm a Odeon pro and literally like the check came and I was like, I'm so not a person who's ever going to be like, um, excuse me, here's the Twitter DM in which you said I could have a free dinner. So the check came and it wasn't like we were not angry about having to pay the check. He was just laughing at me so hard because the entire time <laughs> I'd been like, they're all looking at me because I'm like such a regular with my Odeon tattoo. And like they know that in some way like I am Odeon royalty and they were like, thanks for your time. Oh, man. Which in a way made me love them more because, like, the thing that I loved about the Odeon as a kid was that it felt like a little – like, I don't like anything that's exclusive. I literally eat only at diners. Mm -hmm. But there was something about the Odeon where it was like a diner where you had to be just a little cool to go. Yeah, it's that – it's got that French vibe about it. All of the greatest restaurants in Paris feel like diners and that's kind of why you love them, right? If I, like, really felt like I'd eaten at the great restaurants in Paris, I could answer that better. But I will say that anything that feels like a diner, I do love. And the Odeon's the first place I ever went out for a meal. That's what I've been trying to say is that my parents started taking me, like, out for food when I was, you know, a week old. And one of the places that we went was the first place that we ever went was Odeon. That's such a nice little um, anecdote. I want to hear a little more about your childhood, though, because I didn't know you as a youngin. But I feel like I did. And I also feel like you and I would have had a lot of fun together. We were like ships passing in the night because I was uptown and you were downtown. And also you're like a real prodigy. Like like yeah, people were always like, wow, Lena's young. But I'm like, no, Leandra's young. Like no, you're we're like the when same I, age. 
And How old are you? you've done a lot more. 28. No, I'm 31. I feel like that three years, I'll be 32. Like, I feel like that three to four years, like, you've done a lot and gotten married. There, I'm just saying, like, you've been really busy in your 28-year span. We don't have to argue about who's done more. But I remember when I found out that you were, like, at the time, I guess, like, I must have been 26 and someone was like, oh, she's 23. And I was yeah, like. Yeah, with your television show on HBO and me with my, my personal style blog at the time. You know, my mom introduced me to you. Oh, I did know that, actually. Because you've and talked like to my, my mom. And favorite fact. I love your mom. We stood in line together outside of a dinner at Baltazar. Another fantastic establishment by the same people. By the same people where mm-hmm. I was very proud because once there was an article about Balthazar being back, like as like being like the breakfast new br- – like back to basics. Balthazar is the breakfast spot of the like downtown New York and like I looked at the, the Times picture and just like in the corner was my dad and I was like, seems about right. <laughs> yeah, that's – Like he was in no way the focal point of the image. He was just like a weird ear in the corner of the photo who had just clearly been like eating at Balthazar nonstop. But my mom was obsessed with you and kept being like, do you think this is cool in like a man repeller way or is it just bad? And then Jenny was like, this is a real man repeller about a pair of pants. And so like everybody started talking about you and – I think I went on and I thought it was going to be – I remember what I thought it was going to be was like one of those tumblers that's like, lesbians, you look like Justin Bieber. Like, these pants would repel a man. These ones wouldn't. I didn't understand that there was like a full like ethos and pathos and like thing. And I remember I opened it and I was like, oh, I'm going to love this forever. Oh, that's so cool. Well, It was I- also the first time I remember opening the internet and not like besides like thetimes.com, like not feeling – like it was a guilty pleasure, but feeling like I was getting something out of it because like oh, that's really nice to hear because that is so deliberate, and I've definitely shaved years off my life making sure that that is true for most of our readers. No, it's like before that I had read like exclusively just like gossip sites that talked about how garbagey people looked in their clothes and like. 18 horrifying stories of a woman who swallowed pennies. Like, I had never, like, engaged the internet as, like, a place for me to, like, grow and learn. And obviously now, like, I'm very, like, ensconced with that idea. But, like, you really pioneered that for me. So I was – and I think part of the reason my mom – going back to your question about my childhood, like, my mom was part of this, you know, group of female artists. Some people – they were part of something called Pictures Generation, and we lived in Soho. I went to school in Tribeca and then in, like, by uh, Union Square, and then we moved to Brooklyn. But um, but when my mom was, like, you know, living and working and dressing in New York in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, there was, like, a big sense that, like, no, we're not dressing for men. We're dressing for ourselves, and, like, we're going to make some choices that, like, our mothers wouldn't have understood. And so I think she felt like... Literally, she was getting, like, the blog she needed when she was 25, 30 years later, and that was so cool. Oh, it's so funny that you say that because I had a really similar conversation with my mom at, like, the beginning of my quote-unquote fertility journey where she was talking about how pregnancy is not all it's cracked up to be. And the first time she was pregnant, she was 23, and my dad was also 23, and this young bachelor in New York City who was really handsome and too young to be married, and my mom just felt so fat, and my dad kept making her feel even more fat. 
and she didn't know what to do and she couldn't stop eating. And she's like, I just needed someone to tell me that it was going to be okay. I needed man repeller. And I was like, "That, yeah, that's literally the reason I started man repeller is because I wanted to feel less alone and more understood. And I feel like you're doing kind of the same thing with Lenny now. I mean, it's always the goal. And like Lenny, I mean, firstly, I've been also so impressed by how open you've been about fertility, your fertility experience, because I feel like that's something we often end up hearing about from people. And, you know, I've I've been public about having similar, you know, complications in my life. And we often like we don't hear about it until someone either has a baby and then they're like, oh, by the way, here's what I went through. Or adopts a baby and is like, oh, by the way, here's what I went through. And very few people are like, oh, no, here's what I'm going through. And, like, that's really essential because it's, like, it's interesting. Fertility is one of these areas. Like, there's a few things like this in life. Like, I feel a little bit like the, like, Me Too thing has brought out the fact that, like, like, I for a long time felt alone as somebody who had been, like, sexually assaulted. And then I realized that literally almost everybody I know and love has had an experience of sexual assault and suddenly I was like, oh my God, like this is so horrible what we're finding out, but like there's light because like it's inviting us all to share our stories and to recognize how essentially not alone we are. And I feel like with issues like, like fertility is one of those things where it's like, how did we not know that like half of our friends were dealing with this and that it wasn't just like everybody we knew moved to Brooklyn and automatically got pregnant on that journey. The other piece of it that I find so crucial and that uh, really drove me to share while I was going through it, I mean, to the point that I would go home and record podcast episodes, like after finding out about another failed IVF transfer, is because you never hear about people going through things while they're going through it. And it's so raw to get that intel. And no matter what you say after the fact, it never quite hits home the way it does when you're inside of it. Because there's such a vulnerability and almost like, it's almost a little vulgar too, but there's such a vulnerability about dealing with something when you're inside of it and the self-hate, but also like requirement to self-love and the guilt and the shame. There's so many layers and it's, it's, it's like a real mental treat to unpack. <laughs> I know. It really is a mental treat to unpack. <laughs> I guess after the fact, it's not so fun. It's a mental entreat to hear you unpacking it. That's for sure. It's so intense. I, I mean, I have had moments where I was inside of it, just feeling like this cannot be it. And if this is what my head is going to be like, then I need to get the fuck out. You know. Yeah. But then I understand. On better days, I'm like, no, no, no. This is really interesting. And look at all the notes I'm hitting. And psychologically, this is. I don't know. It just I know. You always, whenever you send me a text about how you are, I'm always actually like really amazed about how it's not like either same old, same old or like some a tortured response. But you're like, actually, I'm finding all of this very psychologically important and I'm getting a lot of insight out of it. Like you're there's an honesty level about what you're experiencing. That's pretty special. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if this is true for you. So have you ever felt like the earth is just like rejecting you? Like you're not supposed to be here? Yeah, I feel like a literal space alien every day. I feel like every person I know who is a really interesting adult spent a lot of time as a kid, like, literally looking up at the sky going, take me back. Like, I feel like that is a bit, like, a confusion about your place here and the fact that, like, you don't feel like there is, like, you don't feel like you know how to operate in the correct way or whatever it is. Like, that is so potent and powerful and specific and real and I just 
I get like, yeah, it's it's a huge thing. Yeah, that's one thing that's been really scary for me that I've not actually been able to talk about until I've been on the other side. Because there have been some real scary like internal moments where I've been like, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. You know, like waking up in the yeah. middle of the night and waking up AB and being like, I, I, I actually feel dead inside, but like I'm still alive. Yeah. You know? No, I know. And like, like do you, I know. And those are the questions where you're like, how much do I want to share with, because I remember once I did an Instagram post when I was at the height of like hormonal insanity. Like I'd been doing Lupron injections, which women who do IVF oh or God. have had I know. You know, we've, we've endometriosis have both dealt with. <laughs> I was on it for endometriosis at the time. So I was on like a three month course. And I'd like, I felt so sick from it. I was going off of it. It was giving me migraines. You know what? Actually, when you told me that you were on Lupron at the CFDA Awards three years ago, I immediately felt a kinship. Like we were actually sisters. I had never I felt that really, connected with another person in my life. I especially, I'd have an either, especially not at like an awards show. Like literally, <laughs> I clung to you and you looked so beautiful. And I was like, and me too. But I remember I posted this Instagram that to me was just really honest where I was like, I'm having a really hard week and hormonal fluctuations and whatever. But like this is my body and this is who I am and I can take it and blah, blah, blah. And like and then I posted another picture that was like somebody testing my hormones in my arm. And I was like fashion week getting my hormones tested or some joke. And all these people wrote back like are you okay? Da, da, da. And I'm not saying that's an incorrect reaction. It's great to check in with your friends and ask if you're okay. But it was just interesting because I was like, oh, to me, that was just like vulnerability. That was just like yeah. baseline vulnerability. And but like that was honesty. For, that was honesty. And for you, it was something totally different. And I really get that. Like it's it's a whole other thing. And I was like, it felt really good to just go like, Actually, no, I'm going to I'm only going to accept honesty in my life. It's the only thing I'm interested in. Yeah, I I can sympathize with that on so many levels and have as a result been the subject of the outrage machine, which I know that you have experience with as well. Like many, Do many I times. Public learning is probably one of the most challenging experiences of a young writer's life. Public learning is such a great way of putting it because like if people would think about it that way instead of like so-and-so had to apologize because they're in the fire. Like obviously yeah. there's really serious accusations from which it's very hard to come back and maybe people shouldn't be able to come back and maybe, you know, like like and people shouldn't be able to just apologize them away. But like when you've made a sort of like mistake because of your world, because of your previous knowledge of the world, you've made a mistake in how you've presented an idea or thought, and you have accidentally caused harm or hurt to a group of people, what could be a better or more humbling thing than to have to, like, understand why and then explain why, you know, like, give people an explanation of why that happened? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Is that how you would say you've dealt with the outrage machine? It's interesting, like, now in my older years, in my 30s, like, yes, I feel like that. I feel like in the last three years that, like, I've had, since my book came out, I feel like I've had, like, a much more measured approach to it. I used to do a lot more, like, are you people crazy than coming back 10 hours later and right. going, actually, you know what, you were right. And now I've really cut out the are you people crazy. Like, 
I don't do a ton of internet outrage, especially not at, like, ideas that are directed at me. Like, it just mm-hmm. never feels that good. Okay, here's another question. So I keep saying that I want to accelerate the end of my 20s. I'm 28 now. And I keep saying, from the time I was 27, I was like, let me just skip the next three years and go straight to 30. How have your 30s been? I know you're only one year in, but how have they been? I'm 1.5. I'm almost 1.5 years into my 30s. Maybe we're uh-huh. going to go. 31 and a half. 31 and a half. I'm right up against 31 and a half. I'm a month from 31 and a half. You should have a half birthday party. By the way, I've like wanted one since I was four. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I felt a big relief turning 30. And turning 30 also coincided with so much in my life. It coincided with the end of girls. It coincided with my a lot of things that I had previously been able to ignore and bury about my health, making themselves apparent and like a real odyssey to try to handle that. And it resulted in actually realizing like some real truths about like I don't need to be everything to everyone so what can I actually do that's going to be thoughtful and make a difference and not drain me for the people that I love and care about like those kinds of questions have really been um, I feel like I've been finding really interesting answers in my 30s. I will say this about your 30s like There's a lot less, like, whose birthday party am I guilty about missing this weekend and a lot more, like, what do I want and need to be able to handle the next six months of my life? Well, at the same time, so, like, macro focusing while at the same time going, like, what would feel the best to me in the next hour? Like, it's almost like when I was in my 20s, I was constantly trying to plan five years ahead, spinning my wheels and then, like, eating an entire pie. And it's almost like now... I'm not trying to plan five years ahead. It just sort of happens, and I'm not spinning my wheels in the same way. And by not trying to plan ahead, I'm not having the same kind of, like, emotional crises. I mean, obviously, this is a work in progress every day, but it just feels like turning 30 gives you some permission, and this might be what you're seeking. It gives you some permission to just, like, turn the notch on the burner down a little bit. Even your voice relaxed a little bit as you said that. Yeah, it felt really good to say it. I was like, as I said it, I was like, I like that visual. I think I will use it as I fall asleep. Like, <laughs> I feel like you're the same, which is like my 20s. Like, I'm not going to say I always did well, did did it right. Like, I was a workaholic, but like mm-hmm. being a workaholic who doesn't sleep, doesn't really properly feed themselves, and then crashes on a semi-regular basis because they're over-caffeinated, underslept, overstressed, their central nervous system shot, like, you're not actually proving your excellence to anybody. And that has been a huge thing for me is to realize, like, asking, wanting to be healthy in my 30s, wanting to be happy, wanting to have peace at home and moments that aren't about my, like, work is okay. But I didn't know that because I didn't think I had another purpose on earth. Oh, I'm totally with you on that, specifically the purpose piece, because I find that my 20s or my late 20s have been so hard because my health is catching up with all of the work I overdid in my early and mid 20s, right? And I was so eager and excited and ready to do it. But by the time I hit like 26, 27, my body was like, you need to slow down. And I almost feel like I try, I started trying to get pregnant around 26 because I needed an excuse to slow down. Otherwise, there yeah. was no reason. And I have struggled so much with what my purpose would be or will be after I did slow down, you know? Yeah. 
That, that question of purpose is really tough. How do you find it? Like, where do you find it? Well, it's so interesting because I always think, like, it's my work. Duh, it's my work. Like, I, my work is to be an of hopefully a voice and an asset in bringing out the voices of other women and to fight for our rights while also writing in a way that's really honest and hopefully funny and hopefully transports you. And, like, that's what I was put here to do. Blammo. Done. So, like, that should sort of just explain it. And then you're going to have your hard days where you don't feel like you're hitting the mark and your easier days where you do. But, like, there's your purpose. But it's not that simple because there are plenty of days where I'm, like, running around doing, you know, like today I did some work on our production company and then I did some work on our, you know, TV side. And then I went and Mm -hmm. had a meeting with our Lenny CEO and then I stopped by the doctor and then I came to you. And it's like, it's like, that's a day of me living what's ostensibly my purpose. But like the most like profound moment I had was just like staring at my Halloween decorations as I walked out of the house and thinking like, huh, those are mine. That's my house. Like, There's something about, like, not to get too, like, poetical, but just, like, existing in the everyday beauty of your life and surroundings that, like, is completely empowering and changes the entire game. Well, because we do all the other stuff for those little moments, right? All the work is so that our personal lives will feel fulfilling and thoughtful and full of love. And so it's ironic that we run ourselves into the ground trying to get there because I think we forget. It's like the trouble with the American dream, right? Like the American dream was always about discovering happiness, but somewhere along the way, you know, success was supposed to be uh, one detour, not even a detour, but it was supposed to be one road that led to happiness. Somewhere along the way, we completely eliminated the happiness from that equation and it just became money, 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 success, 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 success. You know? Yeah. I was talking to a guy recently who will remain nameless, but he was like, I was taught my whole youth. He was like, make, get bitches, make money. Get bitches, make money. Get bitches, make money. Was it Harvey Weinstein? I mean, seriously. Like, like, uh, this guy's a lot hotter, but, um, (laughs) uh, how's the internet going to get mad at me for that? Um, just, I feel like calling Harvey Weinstein unattractive is really fair game at this point. Yeah, I would agree implicitly and back I'm you not, up on this. I don't care to body shame him, but I can, I don't care to body shame him and I don't think it's helpful to the victims, et cetera, but I can casually point out that he's not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Fair. But, um, he was saying this to me and I was like, that's really interesting. Like, my, I definitely was not raised with the idea of get pitches, make money. I mean, but like, or, but I was sort of raised with this idea of like, like, make art and, and accrue the things that people consider valuable, which would be like, yes, houses, boots, a really chic gal. <laughs> Those are all I can think of. Houses and boots in the same Well, like, I'm like thinking that. of what my mom likes, and it's houses and boots, Landra. Like, she's really like, all she cares about is like, the shoe sale on Outnet and like streeteasy.com. Like she's oh, really God. I need I need her phone number because I'm gonna turn her on to sales like she has never seen before. It's like the it's my Jewish knack. It would be her dream because the amount of yeah. time she goes, I'm gonna do a sale fashion show and then comes into like my room when I'm staying with her at some like ungodly hour and like does like a, a pirouette for me and like her new dress and I'm like, oh my god. Oh, that's but, so fun. No, she's a true lunatic and a half shell. But like 
those were, I think I thought what you were supposed to have when you were an adult were like real markers of like fancy pants success and then like mm-hmm. like a well-decorated house where you could have your friends over and outfits you could feel really proud about wearing. And then it was really interesting. Like I turned 30 and I had those things and I was so – and I recognized how blessed I was and I didn't take advantage of it f- for a second. But at the same time, I was so blown out by the effort to acquire them that like I didn't want to have anyone over. I didn't want to put on a nice dress. I didn't want to put on shoes and go to work. Like all I could imagine doing was curling up in that space and like disappearing. (laughs) Yeah, my experience has been really, really similar. And for as many times as I've had arguments with both of my parents about how hard I work, my response has always been, I didn't learn this from nowhere. You know, the priorities at home were so clear. Dad was never home because he was always working and you were always comfortable and complacent and happy when things were going well and really anxious and nervous and upset, possibly even depressed when things were not going well in dad's business. So I am a product of what I have seen and I'm therefore trying to troubleshoot against what I saw. And you are now telling me that I'm not placing enough emphasis and effort on the things that actually matter when maybe I've never, I don't know what actually matters. Maybe I never learned it. I wish I could articulate that as well as you just did to my parents because my parents are constantly like, you know, you're a workaholic. It's like talking to a drug addict. You're going to talk us into anything just so you can get to work. And I'm like, again, I have pictures of mom back at work taking photos with me in a Snuggie when I was a week and a half old. I don't remember any, like, family activities that didn't revolve around one of your jobs. Like, we didn't take a Disney cruise. Just letting you guys know, like, this was really what childhood looked like. And if the worst thing I inherited from you is workaholism and you think you can see better now and you think hindsight is 50-50, then help me the fuck out. Maybe your mom will listen to this and hear that. Maybe she will. And and like, she'll know that like, I'm, I mean, she's going to call me in the next five minutes anyway, but maybe she'll know that I'm proud of her and that I don't judge any choices that she made, but that I might need some help. Like the same way that because of her, I might not necessarily be like excelling in the kitchen. I'm also not – I'm also in a very, very specific space in terms of how much I work and why. And I'm really, really trying to refine it. And in a lot of ways, my body's forced me to refine it. But, yes. like, that can make me feel so lost. Like, I, this summer I took a little time off for my health. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Every day I just – like, every time I do it, I'm like, this is amazing. I talk on the phone. I read a book. I da 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 and then one day I just lay down on my back and I was like, this is hell. Like it was like it switched went from like a dream and within two seconds I looked – it's like some girl who like suddenly looked around and was like, this palace is actually a cage. Like I just – I didn't – a friend of mine who's really high-functioning high, high workaholic type told me that he has fantasies about going to jail because he thinks it'd be relaxing. And I was like, <laughs> no, it wouldn't. But like – there's no better – as I said when I got my first endometriosis operation, I was like, is it a bad sign that I'm excited because this uh, like, this surgery and appendectomy feels like a vacation? And everyone was like, yeah. Like your one time to like chill shouldn't be like when you're recovering from having an organ removed, even yeah. if it is a vestigial organ. Well, you all – you do have a lot going on, Lena Dunham. You have Lenny, which is a full-blown media company at this point. I mean, we're trying. It's, I mean, as you know, having paved the way for us all, like, 
A full-blown media company is not an easy thing to run, and if you think you're just no, going to, like, not. walk in with your running a TV show knowledge and start running a full-blown media company, well, you've got something coming for you. But you're still doing it, and so there's a lot of value in that. Sorry, there's more value in that than anything. So you've got Lenny. You're optioning young adult novels. We are. We're really excited. Things are starting to heat up at our production company, which is heat up is a horrifying term. But, like, things are starting to get very good and focused at our production company, which is really wonderful. Oh, I love when that happens. Without focus and discipline, we have nothing, right? And those are my two weakest suits. Well, I feel really – we just hired an amazing woman named Jane Gehring. I hope she hears this. And she is basically Jenny and my, like, adult babysitter. Not that Jenny's not capable – I'll say I'm not capable of doing all this business organizing. I think Jenny could pull it off, but Jane sure makes it a freak of a lot more fun, and she's very stylish. And so as a result of her, we can understand what our bandwidth is and, like, really start producing in earnest. And that feels really, really great because I think what our goal's always been with our production company and with Lenny is, like, we just want to be pushing the ball forward for women and making projects that we feel excited about. And those things are the most completely uh, wonderful goals to actually get to fulfill. So we're doing that. And then I'm just finishing up edits on my next book, which is going to come out either end of 2018, beginning of 2019, depending on um, tour press tour schedule. Oh, that's so exciting. Is it another book of essays? It's a book of short stories, which is oh, like, I'm like a little fun. bit like, am I punishing people? Because like, that's what no, you get assigned. No, it's going to be like, like a compendium of the best of the Paris Review. That is the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. I'm really excited about it. It's been a real – I've been writing it since before I published my last book. So it's been like in me for a long time. And then, you know, Lenny satisfies so many of my essay writing urges also Mm -hmm. because like I have a thought and I write it. Well, so does the New York Times, huh? Yeah, (laughs) they have been really nice to me in the op-ed department this year, but one of my favorite moments was going to the emergency room and them not knowing anything about endometriosis and me being like, if you need it explained, this is the op-ed that I wrote that came out in the Times today and like literally handing it to the nurse and her being like, I'll read this. And (laughs) I was like, well, life may be weird, creepy and painful, but it is hilarious. Yeah, that that's like the highbrow version of what I do when people ask me for an idea and I don't have one. So I show them my Wikipedia page. Um, That's amazing. Like they say, like you're like, I don't have an ID, but look, this is definitely me. That's exactly what I do. You know, like I'll, I'll be walking into like Dos Caminos, for example. This has happened at Dos Caminos twice. Recently. That's amazing. I still go to Joe's Caminos all the time. That's a good margarita, you know? And yeah, of like, course. Do you have an ID? And I'm like, mm, I'm not carrying a handbag today. I just have my credit card. What I do have is my phone, and here's my Wikipedia page. See, birthday occurred in 1988. That is amazing. I had a thing once go down at an airport where for some reason they were questioning an aspect of my passport And so I busted out the phone and was, like, Googled myself. And the woman was like, Googling yourself doesn't do anything at the airport. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. Like, she was like, we have laws and rules. And it's not like, oh, great, you Googled yourself and were able to find a result. We'll happily usher you onto this plane. So I learned something about, like, you know, civic science that day. (laughs) So, So does not work as well with TSA. 
does not work as well with TSA. You're free to try, girl. But it was not as successful as I could have hoped. I'm going to try it anyway because, you know, you never know. And I, I also I fall into the issue of my name sometimes being Leandra Medine and sometimes being Cohen because I don't – you know what happened? Last year after I lost my pregnancy, for whatever reason, I started to feel more like a Cohen or maybe I wanted to feel more like a Cohen than like a Medine. And I was like, that's it. I'm throwing in the towel. Leandra Medine is the person I was. Leandra Cohen is the person I aspire to be. So I started going by that that's name. That's amazing. But how do you feel now when someone says Medine? You don't correct them. No, not at all because that's still who I've been and I wouldn't be where I am without that. But it, that's so interesting. I think a lot about taking Jack's last name just for private stuff. Like just – I had this thought which I said to him one day which is like I feel like Lena Dunham for so many people has become like in my 20s. It was such a buzzword for things that I didn't feel I actually was. Like it was such a like – like it was like a, a really – it was a simple way to explain Brooklyn. It was a simple way to explain <laughs> hipster assholes. It was a simple way to explain white feminism. It was a simple way to explain a chubby person. Like it just – I didn't like having my name be a buzzword in so many ways. And so I was like maybe my public name is Lena Dunham but my private name is Lena Antonoff. And like yeah, there, that's your name I am, for you. That's my special name for me. And what I like about her, she doesn't exist legally or anything, but when I think about being Lena Antonoff is she's so old and Russian. <laughs> she's like, I like that too. Like but Lena she probably Antonoff doesn't like, wear fur, huh? No, she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't she doesn't have the time or the, it's not practical. <laughs> Not, it's certainly not practical. No, but I just like – and I'm like, she does all the baking I can't do. She does all the housekeeping I can't do. She's hosting like, the Tupperware party that we still haven't had. But like, I know – by the way, for for the listeners out there, Leandra and I have been talking about having a Tupperware party for years and not like a Tupperware-esque party where we're doing vibrators, like straight up Tupperware. Everyone brings Jello. Like, I want it so bad, and I think that this should be our pact to actually do it because I think we would invite really fun people, gab all night, and also, like, how often have you reached into your drawer and been like, all I need is the perfect Tupperware for this, like, piece of pumpkin bread or whatever the fuck, and you can't get it? So frequently I can't even tell you, which I feel like is the real marker of growing up, is when that's the stuff you're searching for. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred and fifty percent, and now we've look at us now, girl. And how long ago did we meet? It's been a while. It's yeah, it's been several moons. Girls had just aired, I think, and Man Repeller was not more than like one or one and a half, or maybe two years old. Oh my god, that's so wild! It's it was at so that downtown for democracy party at the Standard. Oh, my God. And I freaked out. Also, I feel that I can out this trivia, which is that, like, because they didn't have – they just, like, liked you but didn't have an awareness that you were, like, in a serious relationship and about to marry A.B. Before I met Jack, his sister would always be like, you should date a cool, smart girl like Leandra Medine. Like, you were her, like, ideal of, like, what Jack could aspire to as, like – which is, like, a strong, smart Jewish woman with, like, her own style and agenda – and I would argue he got a bed-bound Jewish woman with a tiny ponytail. But, like, still, I just love the idea that, like, their their family was like, let's summon a Leandra Medine. And they were like, and we got Alina Dunham. I think that he got a much better deal. You're but so maybe sweet. that's just me. We oh, should God, do that. We is- should do that, like, trading spouses show. Sorry, one sec. 
Excuse me, I'm so sorry, but would it be okay to uh, not change the garbage bags just yet? We're just, we're finishing up a podcast recording and we can hear it from in here. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Sorry about that. I hear you say sorry to anyone doing anything just as much as I do, which is comforting. I know. I apologize all the time. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I for a while was like working on it. And then I was like, why? Like, as long as I'm not constantly apologizing to people for like my feelings when I'm not actually sorry or like trafficking in manipulative apologies, like... I don't need to not apologize. I don't need to work on my verbal tick about, like, apologizing if I put my water down on your table. Like, it's fucking fine. Like, I feel like we're told every day, like, work on saying sorry less. Work on saying yes more. Start your sentence with a deep breath. And I'm like, bitches, I can't do all this shit. I'm so (laughs) tired and just trying to keep a track of what I do know how to do. That, so I'm going to keep saying sorry because I am kind of sorry. I'm sorry because I know that in an alternate universe, I could be doing a better job at a bunch of these things, and I'm not. So just accept my blanket sorry. Sometimes when I'm not sorry, but I do apologize, I stop myself and say, never mind, I'm not sorry. I don't know why I said that. I mean, that's so, so, so smart and, like, would really disarm me in a conversation. I'd be like, you that's try hot. it. But so that is actually a really good point. All of the messaging that's that's thrown our way and fed at us is a little over it's not a little, it's a lot overwhelming. The like be a powerful woman and don't apologize and work harder and you're such a boss and you got this girl and get it. It's like we're living in Instagram and Pinterest quotes and sometimes I feel like those are running me down. I don't it's not really a New York thing anymore. I thought that works like romantic work stress was really a New York thing, but it's kind of more of a social media thing. And also that thing that's like Monday motivation. I'm like my Monday motivation is to just get through Monday. Like, I don't, I'm like, how many of these people, here's what I want, like a real survey. How many of these people on Instagram have depressive tendencies and are fighting their own depressive tendencies with these inspirational quotes? And how many people actually think like Monday's their bitch or whatever? Do you know what I mean? Like I just, or like whatever the quote is, or like, like, you know, not without my coffee. And then like a picture of a woman running out of her house at 6 a.m. Like, How many people are posting it from their beds while they cry and imagine getting up? And how many people are posting it from their busy workaholic day? Yeah, that's a really good question. My other question is for the people who are posting like when Monday's better than Saturday because you love your job so much. How many of those people mean it? I mean, I really love one of the times I felt most known is we played a game in the writer's room of girls where we guessed everyone's favorite day and everyone guessed mine is Monday which is true like I love Monday because I just like I like when people get back to work I like when they respond to me I like having something to do I like like I love Monday like I don't really care for a weekend but Monday's not necessarily better than the weekend because I love my job so much. It's better than the weekend because I have, like, less time to sit in existential terror. So it's almost like you and I need to update these for, like, modern women, which is, like, when Monday's better than Saturday because on Saturday you had tons of time to think about your fallopian tubes. <laughs> so this could be something that we do. This could be, like, a feature of the Tupperware party. Yeah, you know? which is, like, we're fixing up those memes and making them make sense. Yeah, that's great. When do you feel most vulnerable? God, it really creeps up on me. Like, because I'm so, like, open with so many people. But I guess when I express something that's, like, really, like, it's, as you know, it's easy to be, like, vulnerability isn't saying, like, 
God, I had three speculums inside me today or whatever. Vulnerability isn't even saying like, hey, I had to have part of my fucking insides removed. Vulnerability isn't necessarily saying I've had sex. Vulnerability isn't even always saying I've been assaulted, although that's I think every woman who discloses that goes through a very vulnerable moment. Like, but I know for me, like, when I feel most vulnerable is when, like, the truth of an experience, even if it's ugly is or messy, is revealed. Like, one of the reasons I did feel so vulnerable when I was public about being assaulted is because it wasn't a story that was, like, a guy came from an alley and dragged me. It was, like, involved me admitting that I wanted to attention and that I wanted to be wanted and that I um, – and that I – like, it was me admitting so many different challenging things about myself and, like, admitting moments I wasn't proud of and then trying to understand why I wasn't proud of them. And so, like, to me, like, that moment where you write something and you hand it to someone you love and you're literally covering your eyes, like, waiting to see what they think, that's, like, true vulnerability. Yeah. That's such a good way to put it. And I totally sympathize with that because, for me, I, I was – I was answering that question myself as as I was asking it to you because that's what I do. And yeah. my response was something like when I'm confronted by my own negative self-talk. Yeah. When, I, when I'm actually, you know, looking in the mirror and hearing the things that I say to myself and when I'm public about that. I mean, it's the hardest thing in the world. And it's like because you don't feel strong while you're doing it, even if it no, empowers you not. later. I don't think it really empowers me later either, though. <laughs> You're like, then I don't even know why I'm doing this. Yeah, I think I just need to mute that out. I don't know. Get rid of it. Oh, man. Thank you so much for talking to me. I could do this for hours. Can me you? Me too, girl. I adore you. I adore you and I miss you and I love you. I love you too. Please have a safe flight back here. Thanks, baby. Bye. Bye, girl.